This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere Thursday at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. A marriage that was supposed to last forever. And she said, oh, is this his sister? And I said, no, this is his wife. And she said, I slept with John last night. You enjoy your time left on this earth, okay? Before the world knew about Dirty John, there was Tanya Meehan's 10-year nightmare. John is a stalker. John is a terrorist. He said, my golden life is to slay as many women as I possibly can. A family in danger. He said, Tanya, he might take hostages, and I want you to hide until we find him. And I'm thinking, boy, am I going to have to crush John Meehan's skull with this hatchet? Tanya reinvestigates her past with those who knew John best. I said, you left me, you stole drugs, and you killed your brother. I know everything. With shocking new claims, Tanya realizes this may never be over. I'm pretty certain I'm your older half-brother. It hurts so bad, and in a way, it makes me understand that I never had anything. I never had it. This is The First Wife, John Meehan's Reign of Terror, only on Audible. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Well, yes, I've wrapped Gabby Petito for now, but things are still bubbling away. There's still news breaking, so I may well do an extra episode. But as I said at the end of the last episode, I really wanted to share this fascinating case with you and really illuminating interview with Tonya Bells. Now, Tonya's name may not ring a bell, But Tonya was Dirty John Meehan's first wife of 10 years. And if you listened to the podcast Dirty John or watched the show, you'll know it focused primarily on the latter years of John's life, with really little attention to who he was prior to targeting and marrying Deborah or the decisions that he took to get him to where he was when he met Deborah. And suffice to say, there was a lot going on. And he absolutely honed his tradecraft across his life course, just like all serial perpetrators do. Now, with every case, I always want to do a reinvestigation and what I call a psychological autopsy to understand a serial perpetrator and psychopath like John Meehan. Those who knew him hold up a mirror to him and help us understand the early identification, intervention and prevention lessons, i.e., How do we spot the John Meehans of this world far earlier and better protect women and children? Well, you're going to hear all about that in this interview with Tonya. And I do just want to take a bit of time to just acknowledge how courageous and brave Tonya really is to embark on this journey of discovery and to share it with you all. 
You'll also hear it in The First Wife, John Meehan's Reign of Terror, as we documented our reinvestigation and Tonya's journey in this investigative podcast. Now, that was the clip you heard at the top of the episode, so be sure to check it out. The First Wife, John Meehan's Reign of Terror is on Audible. And for the first time, you'll also hear in depth from Tonya and John's daughters, Emily and Abigail, who are simply amazing. And for me, it's really important that you hear their voices. You see, children are not just witnesses to domestic abuse and coercive control. They're victims too. And I can tell you, if he threatens mum, if he threatens to kill her, he's not a good dad, plain and simple. We absolutely must listen to children's voices and ensure the decisions that we take as professionals are truly in the best interest of the children. Also, before we dive in, I want to give a trigger warning. This interview, which will be in two parts, may well be triggering and it will be angry-making. You see, often in cases, the victim is not just fighting to survive, but they're having to fight a system that's determined to put them further at risk. And what I can tell you is that perpetrators who seek power and control will use those systems and the professionals in them to continue to victimise their ex-partners and children. So with that having been said, here's my behind-the-scenes and candid interview with Tonya about her battle to keep herself and her girls, Emily and Abigail, safe from John Meehan and a system that seemed determined to put them in harm's way. Hi, Tonya. It's really great to have you on Crime Analyst. And it's been a little while since we last spoke, but why don't you just go ahead, first of all, and introduce yourself to my listeners? Great to see you too, Laura. My name is Tanya Bales. I am the first wife of the infamous Dirty John Meehan. And we, as you know, developed a podcast last year with Audible titled The First Wife, John Meehan's Reign of Terror. Yes, and I would highly recommend everyone listens to the Audible series, The First Wife. I guess the first question, I mean, I know why you wanted to tell your story, Tanya, and I felt it was really important that you did. Why was it important to you to tell your story about what happened? I really felt that that Dirty John, the podcast and the Netflix series, focused very much on just the last couple of years of John's life and maybe what we could call John's short game, and that I represented John's long game in manipulation and conning, you know, a woman. And, you know, I've been hearing for 20 years, even before the demise of John, that I should write a book, that I had a, you know, a very interesting story that a lot of people don't experience. And so just all those things together, I just really felt that I wanted to share what I had gone through over a decade of my life, over a couple decades of my life, a decade with John and a decade uh, after that being frightened of John. Yes, that's really important to say that. It's the years that were going on prior. And in fact, you had two children with John and people don't always think about the legacy you still have to deal with. And that's why I thought it was very important for you to to tell your story. And I remember when I last saw you physically, actually, I was heavily pregnant and we were at Dr. Phil's studio, weren't we? And we were going on to Dr. Phil and he asked me, what's the difference between Tonya and, and Deborah? And... I talked about his tradecraft, i.e. that when he met you, he was still honing it. But actually, the greatest difference was that you had a long-term relationship and you had children and you were dragged through the family court. And I feel we touched upon it, but we didn't really zero in on it as much as perhaps 
some of my listeners would have liked us to, purely because there are so many women who end up going through that process. But not only did you end up marrying a psychopath, it's the legacy of that. You've got two beautiful daughters, Emily and Abby, who are fantastic. And for those who listen to the podcast, they hear your fantastic daughters speak out. But the legacy, it lives on and you still have to deal with that, don't you? Yeah, I I deal with, you know, their feelings, their emotions, their relationships as women uh, now looking for uh, spouses. And as people learned in the podcast or will learn if they listen after this, you know, John is the gift that keeps giving. There are gifts that are still coming from him, from the grave. Now said very much tongue-in-cheek by Tonya, for those who don't know Tonya's sense of humour, that you and and both your girls actually use humour to cope with things, which lots of people do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you go through something, some might say that this is extraordinary, but in another way, actually, it's not. There are hundreds of thousands of women all across the world who unfortunately get into relationships with someone who may use coercive control In fact, what we now know of John and having indirectly assessed him using the psychopathy checklist that was developed by Dr. Robert Hare, he was a psychopath. So it wasn't just about Tonya being dramatic about things that were going on. You were actually trying to extract yourself from a relationship with a man who scores 40 out of 40 in terms of his psychopathy and a a very dangerous individual. And I do really want to underline that. But when you got together with him... To my view, he absolutely targeted you. But what I said to Dr. Phil was that he was still honing his tradecraft. He was still figuring out really how best to manipulate people. And if you can just walk us back to the start of when we started the investigative series of what was in your mind, because where I want to go is that there were so many revelations throughout that you uncovered through speaking to lots of different people that you had never spoken to before. So what was your hope in terms of doing the podcast? And it's a different process from writing a book, but what was in your mind, if you can share with people at at the start, if you can take us back to that starting point? Well, I really just, I knew that there were people other than me that John conned. I use the word con. I know you don't like that word, but I can't think of a better word word to use. Manipulated, lied to, scammed. And there were several people, myself included, but other people who had not been heard from. And some of these were also men as well. And there were people that I wanted to talk to myself, but I didn't pick up the phone and talk to them after all of this. Some people contacted me, but there were many people that I knew held a lot of information And I just wanted to, I've always thought that knowledge is power. The more I learned about John, the healthier I got, the more I understood about what I went through. And if there was anything left yet to know, I wanted to know it. And I still think there's probably more that I don't know. I think that's an interesting mindset to share because when you and I first met, we met in West Hollywood. I mean, it was probably, what, four, five years ago, four years ago? Yeah, I would say 2018, maybe. Yeah. And I remember sitting down, and I think this part was actually cut from the Audible um, investigative series, but I remember sitting down and we were with Deborah, and you said to me that you'd been through therapy and that you felt that you had processed things. And obviously for Deborah, it all just happened. So she was still in the middle of processing 
And I remember clearly saying to you, I think probably what you know about is tip of the iceberg. Do you recall that? I do remember that, yes. And all I can say is I felt like I processed what I knew. (laughs) And then we dug up things in this investigation that I didn't know and that I had to process new things all over again. Some very painful things that I learned during the making of this podcast. Yes, and I want to ask you about that, of, of what stood out. And why, why I bring back up that conversation is because, actually, Tonya, whenever I work with women, I always say, you only know what you know. You know, and it's an obvious thing to say, but you don't know what you don't know. And, and it's purely my experience of working on cases with, unfortunately, men like John Meehan that I know that they are way more active than what we ever really understand. And of course, once you start asking questions, which is what you did in this podcast as an investigation. You asked questions of people who hadn't been spoken to before. And we did discover, I mean, there were many revelations and that's not to sensationalize things because this is your life, but the questions that you asked of people, we found out some really painful things. But for you, you, it's your lived experience. It's not just a story for others to devour on Audible. It's your life and it has... It has impact. So what were some of the things, I know what stood out to me, but this is your journey and I'd I'd really like it if you could share with people, what were the things that really stood out and made an impact for you whilst we were going through this process? Well, well, several things. In general, I would say that, of course, I suspected and had some evidence of his cheating, but I had no idea to the extent of his infidelity throughout our entire marriage. And specifically, I remember being pregnant with Emily, and John was taking one of these trips to visit family, supposed trips to visit family or or the University of Arizona. And he came home with a pair of diamond earrings and, you know, maybe to, because it was over my birthday, my 30th birthday, and I was very pregnant with Emily, and to learn that exactly on that trip that he was meeting Kathy in California, that they went to a swap meet. I mean, all the details of what he did when I was home painting the baby's room. That really got me. I I struggled hearing that and knowing that. And as I do, it hurts. I might even cry a little bit. And then I'm sick about it, nauseated for a day, and then I work through it, and then I can put it behind me a little bit. The other big standout, of course, was as soon as we started recording the podcast, my daughters were contacted by someone who thought they might be John's son that would have been conceived about the time John and I got engaged. And so I had to process all of that. Although I'm not stupid, I knew that there was a chance that there could be children out there and that this could come. But when it does come, it still kind of runs you over. So I had to also feel bad about that, think about the timeline, uh, wonder how I missed that, what was going on, um, and then know that this is an innocent child and another woman who was taken by John. It's not her fault. She didn't do anything wrong. And then I had to, you know, process that. And let me tell you, it it didn't help anything that he looks a lot like John. Because there was a time where just seeing John's face would 
make me shudder, you know. So that was very hard. But like I said, he's an innocent child and it's grown on me and it's up to the girls to have or not have a relationship with him. I think he wanted more than than they do, but and not that they do, that they need. They have each other, obviously, and he's an he's an only child. But yeah, finding out that that John had a this child was born like three months before our wedding day. And then we lived in the same town. And then I have to think I could have run into this woman and her child or and did John know that this child existed because there was plans to abort this child. And so maybe he thought she went through with abortion or did he know or wasn't he nervous that we might run into this woman and her kid living in the same town? I mean, your mind just goes everywhere, every scenario. But, you know, I've calmed that in myself and I'm okay with it now. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy and health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey chili and zucchini, and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now, they've done the maths and Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormeals, F-A-C-T-O-R, factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Yes. And what struck me, actually, even as you describe what we found out and you had a conversation with a vet and I was listening to that conversation and it's your tremendous empathy, actually, that you are processing these things that are major, actually, whilst we're recording. But you're also able to hold space for a vet that it wasn't her fault and it wasn't Jordan's fault. And you can see through past your own pain to understand that. And that really struck me, actually, Tonya. And I want to share that with you because I'm not sure we had that conversation. You know, oftentimes what I do hear is anger from a woman towards the other woman as if it's something that they did. But you never went there. You were very much of the mind, well, it, it wasn't their fault. And what if she didn't know that you existed And John did have this ability to manipulate people. 
That always struck me that you went to that place, first of all, and, and held empathy and compassion for a vet first and foremost. And of course, she didn't know, but you had to work out that timeline. And I remember us talking about, well, was Jordan even John's son? And I was very cautious in the fact that, yes, I did believe, and I still do, he probably fathered more. But of course, you could be reached out to by lots of people making a claim. And I wanted to get the DNA results before we all rushed to judgment. And I remember you saying, but when I see him, Laura, it's the look. And it's just unmistakable to me that this is John's son. And you were absolutely sure in that. And we, of course, waited for the DNA results and it was confirmed. But I can only imagine that... In a way, it's the stuff of your nightmares, actually, because to have the spitting image of John still walking around and wanting to have a relationship with you and your daughters, it, it just raises a whole new legacy of things that I'm sure that you would rather have just closed the lid on. But even then, you still held space and compassion for Jordan, and, and that's remarkable. Well, I appreciate you saying that, and I don't know where I get that from, except that I know what it feels like to be a victim of John's. And I also always think it's your partner's decision to have the affair. Any woman can come, you know, running to your committed partner and say or do anything, but it's it's only their decision that makes it happen. So I always hold them accountable, not the other person. Even if they're doing wrong, they're doing wrong. But the final decision is made by the committed partner. Absolutely. But I think in the ecosystem and with, you know, patriarchy, women are set against each other. And that suits men, a certain type of man, to keep that going, that women blame each other rather than who's the person that, that's made the commitment. And of course, we, we found out lots of other things too on this. Um, it was quite a remarkable and an intense journey, wasn't it? in a, a short period of time where you're having to process real time. And I'm not sure people really comprehend that. You know, it wasn't done for being on the microphone or producing a podcast. And the timing was serendipity and synchronicity, really, wasn't it? You, yeah. you can't plan that when you're in production, that these things show up. But you were having to live and breathe it and process it real time. And we were trying to be respectful to you, of course, but capture these things in the moment. How did that feel to you, the, the documentary side to it, of documenting really your live processing? That must have felt quite difficult at times. Well, everything about this experience has been difficult. But like you said, it was kind of serendipitous that, <laughs> you know, all of this came to me in, you know, when did we record? 20, 2020, 2021? I mean, I could have found out any year between 1990 and the recording of the podcast. So yeah, I mean, it's hard and I'm, I'm doing it in front of, I mean, I know you, <laughs> I would consider you my friend, but you're a friend from across the, the country and, you know, producers and, and editors and they're all, I think it probably made them as uncomfortable as I was because they hear me hearing things for the first time. So, yeah, it was a process and, and a journey, but it's my journey. And so I do the best I can. And you did tremendously well. I, I know we did debrief some things as we went along. We didn't debrief everything, but there were some times where, 
you know, there is an added advantage of me knowing most of your story, not all of your story, but also being trained to understand this stuff and being your friend and, and having compassion. And I think everybody on the team wanted to ensure that you were safely held and we try and get you through, you know, as best we can and hopefully come out the other side together. There, there wasn't any drive for exploitation or sensationalizing key things. And, and I hope that that felt, I hope that that felt okay in the moment because it, it's not easy when you're dealing with people's trauma and things that show up that you had no realization might show up. I'm sure it was a very challenging process. And even now we're talking some time after. If you could describe or if you could sum up the experience of actually going through the podcast and finding these things out, what were the words that you would use to describe it? What would they be? Um, I hadn't thought of that, but well, obviously there were times where I had to decide, did I really want the whole world to know some details that I had not told? I had never told anyone about the night that I met John other than my husband. So it was scary. <laughs> it was scary. But, you know, Laura, I just decided if I wasn't going to be totally open, totally vulnerable with my story and learning things and how I reacted to them and sharing everything, that there was no sense me even telling it. So that's why I made the decision to to let it all out. And, and I thought that was the only way I was ever going to help another woman was to be genuine and vulnerable. And I would say you were brave and courageous in that. And why I bring that up again is because we didn't know what we were going to find. And, and more so, yes, you put yourself on display to help other people. And you always said that right from the start and also help you understand and also for your daughters, for them to understand and to tell it once and hopefully not have to keep revisiting it. I remember you saying that, but also the fact that I am very grateful that you did decide to step into it. And I'm grateful for all of those that will be listening to this conversation and the first wife who you've helped in some way. And it's not always visible. We don't always know the people that we've helped, but I was contacted by lots of people afterwards and I'm sure that, that you have been too. It was such a genuine and authentic reinvestigation. We didn't know what was going to show up. And more so, you laid yourself open for someone like me to ask more questions and to ask uncomfortable questions at times. Because for me to do my job and to be able to analyze things to help you and help other women, then I had to know about, well, tell me about when you first met and tell me about, well, what happened when he came back to yours? And those moments where I remember you saying, you know, yes, I made those decisions in the moment, but you know that people in the cold light of day will make harsh judgments. And they normally make harsh judgments to the woman, not to the man. And he was always pushing the boundaries. He was always trying to get more and more. And actually, the very first time I asked you about, well, how did you meet? I realized that he targeted you, which I suspected. He picked you out. And then he was testing your boundaries the whole time to then drive him home, to then, can he come in? To then, you're playing ball and messing about. And he was just constantly pushing for the next thing, the next thing. And he tries to make you feel comfortable. But actually, the next day, he's the one paging you. And everything that he did, the setup, happened from the moment that he met you. And we only got to that because you were honest and you were authentic and you told me the truth, even though you knew people might judge you. 
and they may shame you or blame you in some way. You were truthful because we wanted to get to a true account and a true analysis of what went on. And the revelations just kept coming, didn't they, throughout, even from Mark um, Armanette, from Dr. Perry. There were lots of people that you spoke to and had these conversations that, even with the vets, that were just mind-blowing. Then we tried to make sense of it all and piecing it together in multi a multi-part series where you have to listen to it again and then, you know, figure out what that means to your life. But also we had to think about the storytelling of how it made sense to other people. Um, and we didn't really change very much. It was very much an organic timeline of talking to lots of different people and putting it together. And there were lots of shocking things. One of the things for me was certainly family court. And I think for you, you had to revisit things perhaps you had put to bed. Well, let's talk about the family court because... To me, there were just so many points where I was like, wow, what does it really take for a court to understand that a man is dangerous and that he should not have contact with his daughters? And for you, you lived it and you breathed it. You were a mum just trying to make sure you and your daughter survived. Tell me what stood out to you the most about that period when you're literally fighting for survival. Well, I had no uh, experience in the court system. I watched some court TV where everything happens very fast and and they peg people very fast. And that's all I knew. So I thought I would go to court and look at all this evidence I have, look at these things. I thought it would move very quickly that they would, you know, I would be believed and that they would do exactly, you know, what I was hoping for, which was reduced or no time with the girls or give me full custody immediately. I I was astonished, really, at how long it took, how long they fought hard for. The court really fought harder than John did for the relationship between him and his girls. All of his actions outside of the court basically said everything was more important than his children. Although because he's taking me to court, it looks like it's important to him. But everything else said, they're not the most important thing to me. So, yeah, I mean, 18 months to get divorced and it took him going to prison to, you know, to get the custody. I just thought it moved so slow. And I know that women sometimes or men sometimes make up stories during divorce. And I think that hurt me. And that worked against me because they hear so much nonsense sometimes, I believe, in court that I don't know that people who are telling the truth are always believed or or taken at face value. So it was hard. And John made it very difficult. I think it was just another way for John to control me. He could drag me back into court over and over and over. And Kind of a funny thing my new husband and I say all the time comes from John and that John said, if we keep going to court, neither one of us are going to have two nickels to rub together. And, you know, my husband and I are both successful nurse anesthetists. And every time we have something great happen in our life or get something new, my husband will say, he'll just say two nickels. And I know what that means. (laughs) But again, I think sometimes people just keep you in court as a form of control. I think it happens a lot, actually, from having worked the cases. I mean, for me, I was worked in the criminal courts and then a woman contacted me about a family court case and she was being told she had to go to court even though he had tried to kill her and he was trying to get custody of their two children. But 
his index offence, why he was in prison, was because he had raped and tried to sodomise at knife point a 14-year-old girl. And then with his partner, he tried to kill her. And he goes to prison. He has access to legal aid, and she didn't because she worked part-time at a university. And the court was deciding whether he should have custody, and she was having to represent herself. And I couldn't make head nor tail of this case, Tonya. I, I I came at it, well, hang on, he's a convicted sex offender. But a judge is thinking that he should get custody of his daughter, who's a minor, and that that's okay, and the mum doesn't have access to legal aid, but he does and he's in prison. What, what's going on here? And the mum had reached out to me, she'd see me on a TV programme, and, and I remember jumping on a train to meet her. I spent three hours with her, and I just thought, how can we understand how dangerous he is in a criminal court but not understand in a family court? And then I realised the two didn't speak to each other. And when those two don't speak to each other, it means the evidence gets lost and facts are misrepresented and there's no join up and it renders a mum very, very vulnerable. So it, it taught me a lot just from that one case. And then afterwards, unfortunately, I saw it all the time. So when I was listening to, if we step it back from when I first heard your voice was actually on the podcast Dirty John and before I interviewed Chris Goffard and the standout thing to me was how is this woman and her children alive? This guy very clearly made threats to kill her. This is terrifying. And the court wants to give him custody? Take a listen to this. I have it on excellent, excellent authority. You're the one who's been making the phone calls. I have never called the Indiana Board of Nursing. I got a big smile on my face. You know why? Because it's going to get done. What's going to get done? You will understand when the time comes. I'll be in Bermuda having a big Cobra Libra with a 22-year-old when it happens. That's you nice. You keep that in mind. Tanya, you enjoy your time left on this earth, okay? Because that's what it's going to come down to. Everybody knows it'll be you, and you're not going to make it to Bermuda. Oh, I'll be in Bermuda, Tanya. Oh, you'll be in Bermuda. So yeah. where will the kids be? Probably with your parents. Okay. Wondering, gosh, what happened to mom? So again, I felt it was the same case coming back because there are sadly so many of them. And this is where the family court really misses the risk assessment. You know, he was meant to be psychologically assessed and evaluated, but he didn't make time for it. He didn't prioritize it and it wasn't followed up. So your very astute comment that he said he wanted custody, the court seemingly on his side, but yet all his actions seem to be in direct conflict with that. He hasn't got a job. He's not paying health insurance. He hasn't got a home. He doesn't prioritise the court evaluations. He's spending more money on dating websites than he is in paying you anything for child support. Why can someone not see all of those things are in direct conflict? That probably is the most astute assessment, really, that if you look at what someone's saying and what they're doing, are they congruent? and absolutely not for him at every stage. And yet, very few people saw through him. You did, and there were a number of other professionals, like the lawyer Ellen and Dennis Lucan and Detective Julia Bowman. But in the main, lots of people just didn't really see it for what it is. But for you, that war of attrition, 
you know, that constant where you're going to court, where you're having to fight your corner, where things are being misrepresented. And I remember even when he was being investigated by the DEA, none of that was available. None of the criminal stuff was available in the family court. And each time, even when he goes to prison, what can we seemingly do to give this man custody, even though he, when he did have them, you talked about the girls coming back, not being clean, wearing the same clothes, you know, that there was no real care and that he would have women round and seemingly not spend any time with them. And I think that that equally, when we think about the risk assessment, he made threats to kill you. And he made threats to take the girls away to Bermuda. He wasn't paying child support. He had no job. There was separation. There was coercive control. There was stalking. There were threats to kill. There was access to a gun. All these things are high risk factors. And you're sat there in court, unprotected, actually, because you didn't have anyone there even to protect you. You must have thought it was all bonkers, didn't you? From, you know, how could that happen in the real world when you've got a job, you're doing all the right things? What did you notch it up to? I mean, what what did you, how did you rationalise it or square it away in those moments? I just think that I thought this is the process because I didn't know any other way. Like I said, I had no real uh, experience with court for myself or anybody else. And I just thought that this is how it works because I had nothing to compare it to. But yeah, I would be extremely frustrated over and over and over again. I had two attorneys who were helping me. Well, I had an attorney helping me get the protection order based on those threats. And of course, he consulted another male attorney they both said, I don't know if we can get you the protection order. You don't sound scared on these tapes. And I said, turn up the volume. Listen to my breathing. I promise you I'm scared. The cop told me to keep him on the phone to try and get him to say more, less vague things. So I'm trying to <laughs> make conversation as best I can so that he will say what he means because enjoy the time you have left on the earth when printed on a piece of paper and no one actually saying it doesn't sound like a terrible statement. So when it's transcribed, that doesn't sound like a death threat. <laughs> so, I mean, those are just some of the struggles I had. Yeah. I mean, I, I still am just like shaking my head. Um, you know, I'm delivering training tomorrow and the next day on the dash. And I always talk to professionals about what's written on a page mm -hmm. and listening to something, listening to the tone, listening to the breathing, listening to the delivery, listening to how it's received. You know, all these things are really important. It's not just what's written on a page. Right. And I think that you've just underlined that really well. Even when someone says they're scared, that's read in. Well, how did they say I'm scared? And somebody who's quite calm, who might be trained in the medicine profession or might be in law enforcement, well, they're probably going to come across a little bit more grounded. You know, we're not all the same in even how we react. But it's maddening to me when I hear people, well, she wasn't scared enough. Well, what does that mean? Right. And you always say that the, I won't say it exactly as you do, but the victim knows what danger they're in more than anyone else. Absolutely. And I knew that based on, you know, 10 years of an even keel marriage that when this flipped for me and John, when he knew that I figured him out, 
the look in his eye, the tone of his voice, his language were things I had never seen in the 10 years of our marriage. And so I knew intuitively that I was in trouble and, and I was in danger. And But being able to translate that to, I, I know my, my divorce attorney, you know, felt it and, and represented me as best as she could, I guess. I feel like Denny Lucan understood and did the best that he could. He even stood in family court outside the courtroom for eight hours to be there to testify for me. And I know he probably wasn't paid for any of that. So it's probably the reason I'm alive is that I I did remarry when John was in jail. I had Detective Lucan by my side and I had a good support system and I had a job where I could pay for an attorney. A lot of women may not have one or any of those things. I had to be an advocate for myself and, and, and that showed in, in all of the, the journaling that I did, that I saved everything, that I recorded phone calls of everything. I just, I had to represent myself as best I could because I'm the one who cared the most, right? I'm the one who's protecting my daughters from their own father. It's something I never thought in a million years I would ever have to do. Okay, I'm diving back in here because I'm going to wrap on that very important and powerful point. Tonya had to step up and be her own advocate and protect the girls from their father. No woman wants to have to do that. And Tonya had a good job and the resources to get a good attorney, but many don't. Also, Detective Dennis Lucan was one of the few who really got how dangerous John was, but all professionals need to get it. There's no room for complacency. That's what I'm working towards and why these episodes on crime analysts really matter. Professionals in the family justice system and the criminal justice system must stop giving violent and abusive men a pass. All you're doing is enabling perpetrators' behaviour, further emboldening and green-lighting them to escalate, and that's when women and children are seriously harmed and killed. And that's not okay. More to come next week. So until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.